there's an intelligence to our universe. If we can live in tune and with harmony with that intelligence, then life flows. The people were poor as anything, hardly had the shirt on their backs or the roof over their head. Villagers that would come to see him prescribe the local herbs and I'd sit next to him and he'd just take one look at them and he'd whisper to me exactly what was wrong with them. Sleep cycle, which starts at around 10 p.m. And then we have breakfast if we're hungry in the morning. Because traditionally, that's what breakfast was, to break the fast. The ancient wisdom is that we fast occasionally when we're sick or when we've gone off track a little bit to bring it back to our baseline health level. But fasting is not a lifestyle. Fascinating trend happening all over the world called anal sunbathing, where <laughs> people are pointing their, their tutu towards the, the, the sun. Does the Vedics tell us that there's anything in this, or are these people just crackpots who need to put their pants on? This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com and ladies and gentlemen it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast unstoppable today mark bun how are you mark i'm very well buddy and uh really looking forward to having the chat Mate, it's great to have you here. Now, I, um, you know, I feel a little bit privileged because I, uh, I, you know, I've gone through. I know a little bit about you, um, probably more than maybe some people who maybe don't know you from your AFL days. But uh, one thing I like to always ask my guests whenever we get going is, um, if you're at a dinner party with eight people that you've never met before, uh, and uh, the conversation turns to you and they say, "So, what do you do, Mark? How do you actually answer that question?" I usually start with something very simple, along the lines of, "I help." people make their lives and their health simpler. If the first response is, uh, isn't it tragic what's happening in the Middle East today, then I, I know not to go any further. But uh, if they're interested, I then sort of delve into, well, what does that look like? And it's really about reminding people of what I call the simple, common sense, age-old, traditional wisdoms of health, collectively the ancient wisdoms of health and well-being, and then trying to, I basically help people practically integrate those into a very busy modern life, whether that's for their business team, you know, their executive team, their company as a whole, or their individual health. And uh, we sort of dive into things from there. And so at a general level, you're a health, happiness and performance coach, and you've got a background, you played AFL um, from 1990, 1990 to 1995, in, including a, a bit of a stint for Fitzroy. So you've yeah. got a bit of a background in performance, yeah? Yeah, I started off at uh, Fitzroy and then uh, had three years at, at Hawthorne, but it was I was one of those players, looking back, I was fortunate. I was just on the, the edge, basically, so I was always looking for an advantage. You know, I wasn't the most gifted player. I wasn't a superstar by any um, stretch of the imagination, so I was always looking for performance tools, fitness tools, and I was studying Western health science at the time. And then the guy who taught me something called Transcendental Meditation when I was 19 gave me a book on Ayurvedic medicine and how it applies to sports performance. And it was one of those sort of light bulb moments where everything starts sort of 
going off and you sort of see things in a whole different light about performance and health and and that's where the journey started so you were introduced to um, transcendental at the age of 19 yeah yeah so yeah, I what always, a blessing yeah yeah and i always sort of think of myself as a bit of a uh, a pioneering weirdo you know so literally <laughs> 30 years ago i i was doing transcendental meditation and you know i'd sneak off into the change rooms before a game at the MCG and meditate while everyone else is banging out the Pat Benatar or the the Iron Maiden and uh, I was doing sun salutes and nasal breathing um, you know 30 years ago and people thought I was a wacko but today most of that stuff's pretty uh, pretty mainstream so uh, it's and good to need a, a mainstream wacko today yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> people are catching so where, up where does your journey begin mate because you know it, performance seems to be a strong part of your life I'm going to assume you probably started playing sports and and football at a very early age where does it all begin where where were you born mate i was born in melbourne grew up in melbourne and as i said my sort of as a teenager my whole life was based around trying to make afl football that was my one goal girls were secondary study was secondary um, and that was a really key focus and i guess it was during that time that i made this transition and, and this book was a really big factor in it that's this idea of Ayurvedic medicine, which is a traditional age-old system that sees health and well-being and performance in quite a different light. And to sum it up, it's basically rather than just punishing ourselves always, whether it's in business, we're just always driving and driving and driving, that there's an intelligence to our universe and there's an intelligence to our minds and bodies and emotions. And if we can live in tune and with harmony with that intelligence, then life flows. The analogy I always use is like a surfer, you know, out of Manly and you're surfing. If you knew that there were certain waves that had come at certain times that are going to be beautiful, clean waves that you can catch and just enjoy the ride, nature does all the work. You know, as long as you get the timing right, you just enjoy the ride. Whereas if you keep, you know, trying to bash through the big waves and you have to dive everything, it's hard work, it's tiring. And this is life. And this is what I really came to realize. We can sort of go with nature in business, in sport, in art, whatever it is, and it's enjoyable, it flows, we stay healthy, we're productive, we're clarity of mind, or we can try and bang ourselves against the waves and it's it's tough work and hard. And so I'm going to assume there was a part of your life, um, maybe in sport or in other aspects where you were running the hard game. Um, when did things change? You started meditating at 19, but I'm going to assume there had to be a moment that kind of pushed you in a different direction. Because from what I've experienced, you know, being an early AFL player myself, you know, it's not exactly in most cases. Well, most sports, I have to say, wouldn't be what you'd be considered, especially in this country, mindful. So how did that get on the radar, mate? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the other end of the spectrum there. But um, Well, yeah, and particularly back in the day, it was exact opposite of mindful. It was no pain, no gain. And so I had that as the, the background. And even my sports science training was all about all about that same. And I guess it was 1993, 94. Um, this book spoke a lot about um, getting in the zone that in traditional cultures and the ancient wisdom, the actual purpose of exercise wasn't to break the body down so it would rebuild itself. It was actually to get in the zone. That was the purpose. And that if you breathe in a certain way, what they call yogic breathing, deep nasal diaphragmatic breathing, if you have your attention in a certain way, then you can actually reduce stress in the exercise fame, uh, phase and so that mind-body actually become integrated, which is what the zone state is. So I started to just tweak my training and 
when I was playing, you know, I said sun salutes before, I, you know, in warm-ups. I did nasal breathing during games and in training and just meditating before games. And so although I was still straining, obviously, and it was hard, once I finished my career, I was able to sort of do that more and then try and transition and use those principles into work and life and business and, and uh, trying to go with nature rather than against it. And so you mentioned a book. Was there a book you found at an early age that kind of put you in this direction? What was that? Yeah, it was a book called Body, Mind and Sport. It was a guy called John Dulyard who had the same sort of Ayurvedic training as I did. And he was a triathlete and had the same sort of background where he was always pushing and got to sort of top five, top 10% in America, but couldn't quite break through. And then he also learned transcendental meditation. And the, the guy who taught him said, um, don't train while you fall asleep in your meditation. So if you're meditating and you're falling asleep, then you're obviously in a fatigue state. So you want to keep meditating, rest. And then when you don't fall asleep in your meditation, then you're right to train. And so he started to train that way. And it's based on, you know, just listening to the body more. And then he just really improved his performance, you know, had less injuries. And, and his book was all around, you know, Ayurveda and sports performance so how we adjust our diet for different body types how to adjust training in terms of what we call a daily routine so a body clock what modern science calls a circadian medicine or chronobiology that you know we eat foods at different times of the day we sleep at different times and if we can live in tune with those cycles then everything flows much much better and we did you get yourself into a a, beta, a a state of disrepair that kind of got you on the hunt for and this book coming across? What what was was yeah. there was there something that got you there? Uh, injuries um, certainly were a trigger. Um, my body type didn't lend itself greatly to AFL footy. I'm pretty sort of a, a slim build naturally, so getting smashed into by a hundred kilogram blokes running at full speed for five or six years wasn't a great thing. So yeah, injuries and just the fatigue really sort of started to wear away. So that's what sort of got me looking into sort of alternatives. And so what happens from here? You, 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 you get into AFL, you start playing for some of the best clubs in the country, if not the world. And uh, what happens to the career? Where did uh, you go, mate? Yeah, no, well, as I said, it wasn't a, the most glorious career. Um, by any stretch. So after uh, six years, I uh, basically got, got the flick from Hawthorne. And uh, in many ways, it was the, a great gift. You know, I got out while I could still walk and had uh, relatively good health. And uh, I went overseas actually at, the, at 1997 and I was working for an aid group in Cambodia. And this is another real sort of life-changing moment where I went from sort of the whole Western world of achievement and striving for success um, with a lot of sort of stress within that to these traditional cultures in Cambodia and Vietnam and Malaysia and Laos where the people were you know as poor as anything hardly had you know the shirt on their backs or the roof over their head but they were just happy and it really struck me as as all of us do and all your listeners and yourself you go to these countries and we're just we're overwhelmed by the simplicity of their lives but the fact that mm. generally speaking they're just they're happy and it's about community and and uh, that was another life-changing moment and that introduced me to Ayurvedic medicine there was an Ayurvedic doctor and we'd go out in the you know back blocks of Cambodia on a little motorbike out in the, the sticks and there was um, villages that would come to see him treat them and he'd you know prescribe the local herbs and I'd sit next to him and even before they'd walk in the door he'd just take one look at them and he'd whisper to me 
exactly what was wrong with them just because of the color of their skin or, you know, the way they were carrying their baby. Or, and uh, I just loved this whole idea of sort of the ancient uh, wisdoms and that got me into Ayurvedic medicine. So I came back and studied that. And so what was the goal to study? Was it to, to, to learn it for yourself or did you, was the goal to become an Ayurvedic practitioner? Yeah, and I was definitely to become a practitioner and uh, an educator. My passion is, as I said at the start, just trying to make health and well-being and life generally simpler for people. And that's what uh, the essence of Ayurveda is, that, you know, there is this intelligence to life, what we could call natural laws of laws of nature, that if we humans can live in tune with those laws, best time is to eat, to exercise, to sleep, daily routines, seasonal routines, then life flows. So, um, yeah, I just love the simple philosophy and uh, went into it from there. And so what are some of the basic Ayurvedic principles that you've learned that most people can apply that can have a pretty dramatic impact on health? Yeah. One is just this idea of a, a, the daily body clock. You know, we hear so much in Western science, it's about, you know, how many calories we eat or when we do our training. And, but in Ayurveda, it's not so much just what we do, but more importantly, when we do it. And I said, this is getting backed up now with, you know, circadian medicine, chronobiology. But in Ayurveda, there's a body clock. And in the middle of the day is when the sun is at its peak. And the sun actually regulates most of our internal body clock and our internal digestive fire, which we can link to the sun's fire, is actually strongest in the middle of, of the day. And this is why when you go to Europe or Asia, traditional cultures, lunch is the main meal of the day mm. as we go through the day and night des descends the sun sets so that means the cosmic fire if you like is dying down allowing us as humans to get ready for the sleep cycle which is obviously our repair and rejuvenation cycle our digestive fire also goes to sleep so the biggest thing i see in corporate life business life life generally is we go about our day we work hard if we get any time for lunch, it's, you know, we throw something down before the next meeting or while we're getting the email off to an important client. So we don't give any much respect to lunchtime. And then we get home at the end of the day when the sun set, the digestive fire is going to sleep and we have this big substantial meal with the family, you know, the steak and three veg or the chicken palmer or whatever it is. And the body's just not set up to digest it. So it compromises the sleep cycle. People wake up heavy, you know, in business environments, you talk a lot. We talk a lot about, you know, the morning routine, getting the morning routine right. Well, in Ayurvedic medicine, we actually start with the evening routine because unless mm. you get the evening routine right first, you can't naturally have a good, productive, motivated, energized morning routine. So one of the key things I get people to do is just gradually, if it's not in their routine already, to start lightening up the evening meal so that. The evening meal is a lighter, more easily digested meal. Have your heavier foods at lunchtime if you're a meat eater, lunchtime, and then you know go to bed on a much lighter evening meal. Sleep's absolutely dynamite, more energy. You wake up early, you're motivated to exercise, you're clearer thinking in the morning to strategize for your business or whatever it is. So it's a game changer. And so you, you talk about um, evening routines, but before we jump into maybe some of what one of those might look like in detail, like a lot of our listeners are, are quite onto the intermittent fasting bandwagon. And um, yeah. if there's one question I don't think I've asked, but I would be curious to know, what are the correlations between fasting, intermittent fasting and, and the Ayurvedic work that you've done and what you've learned from that? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And I start to now 
integrate intermittent fasting into my uh, lectures and things. So a step backward firstly is one of the pillars of Ayurvedic understanding is that we're all different and we each have a unique body type or constitution. You know, some are very fiery by nature, business people, athletes, you know, others are more earthy by nature, slower metabolism, they put on weight easily, more predisposed to diabetes and things. Others are the creatives, you know, the Steve Jobs, the brilliant sort of artists, business people that have these ingenious, innovative ideas. And we're all a blend of these, but we need to understand who we are in terms of our basic constitutional nature before we can understand what version of fasting or even diet generally mm. is appropriate <clears throat> for us. So in terms of fasting, for those that have an earthy constitution, you know, slower metabolism, put on weight easily. I look at a bit of chocolate cake and I put on two kilograms, that sort of thing. More extended fasting towards the 16-hour window that we commonly hear is really good for them. For those on the other end of the spectrum who are what we call in Ayurvedic medicine vata predominant types, vata is space and air dominant. You know, they're the thinkers, they're the creatives, they're really slim build, light build, they never put on weight. For them to do any form of fasting can be really, really dangerous in certain situations. And so we need to understand who's doing the fast first. And then the other big thing I talk about in terms of intermittent fasting is that the whole point of it is to reset the body back to its ideal base point, if you like. It's like cleaning your house. If you have too many parties and you've you know, got all your friends over for a few weeks, at the end of that, you need to clean the house and it takes a bit of time. But once the house is clean, you don't keep cleaning it. Okay, so once the kitchen, mm. the kitchen bench is clean, you don't keep cleaning it every day. You wear off the enamel and it's actually harmful. And so the body's the same. Fasting, the ancient wisdom is that we fast occasionally when we're sick because it helps us repair or when we've gone off track a little bit to bring it back to our baseline health level. But fasting is not a lifestyle. It's not something we should be doing every day or every couple of days, particularly for those certain body types. And the real key is that when people are doing these sort of 14 or 16 hour fasting regimes, which can be fantastic in the right way, they should try and have their last meal of the day earlier. So a common regime is 16 hour fast, have your last meal at eight o'clock at night, and then don't eat till lunch the next day. What Ayurvedic medicine would say was don't have your last meal at eight o'clock because then you're going straight into your sleep cycle, which starts at around 10 p.m. So from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m., Ayurveda says, it's like the wave is at its peak for what we wanna do. Rejuvenate, detox, get rid of the impurities, revitalize the kidneys, the liver, everything. So if we can shift that last meal of the day more to five or 6 p.m. and then don't have dinner, and then we have breakfast if we're hungry in the morning, because traditionally that's what breakfast was to break the fast. Lunch is not when we break the fast, breakfast is where we break the fast. And so then it becomes on your body type. If you've done a 15 or 16 hour fast from 5 p.m. the day before, and you're really hungry for breakfast, perfect. If you're not that hungry, just have some juice and you might go through till lunchtime and extend that or whatever. So, but trying to maximize the use of that 
the natural body cycle at 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. and try not to have a big amount of food in the stomach before that. That's that's a really interesting perspective. So what are some of the dangers of, of overfasting? How does that show up? And how would someone know if they are perhaps pushing it? Because, you know, there are a lot of, you know, different... Um, um, I guess you'd say protocols for intermittent fasting. You know, some people prefer to do the, you know, the the eighteen and six, or the twenty four, or the you know yep. the twelve twelve, or the sixteen sixteen eight. If yep. someone has pushed it too hard, I know I have myself. What would be some of the things that might be showing up for them that may make them confused as to well, I thought fasting would make me healthier, but I'm actually finding a, you know, I'm having more challenges. What might that look like, mate? Yeah. Well, generally, what we get nearly. Nearly always when people fast initially, they feel better because mm. usually we've, we're out of balance to some degree. We've pushed the boundaries, you know, we've been partying a bit hard. So there's that initial feeling better phase. So we think, oh, if a little bit's been good, then more should be better. And that's where we run into problems. So the actual specific red lights, if you like, are going to be different for each body type. The earthy types will generally do very well on regular intermittent fasting. They generally don't have too much problems. The pitta types, which are more these fiery types, when we fast, we actually put the digestive fire out. These people are used to having a really strong digestion, strong appetite. They look forward to meal times, and it gives them that energy to perform at an elite level. So these people will often find that they get digestive problems. It's a bit like when we fast, the space in air increases. You know, it's like someone opens the door and the wind comes in and it starts to blow the fire out. Okay, And so we get that fire spreads in the body. So um, pitta types get irritable. You know, They get frustrated with things. They get um, digestive issues, so acid reflux type things because the, the pit is not in the stomach. It's starting to flare out. Skin rashes, um, that sort of thing. Sleep is always tends to get compromised when we um, fast too much because it's too much space in there. We're not grounded enough. And for these, what we call vata types or those that are space and air types, then they'll get red lights really, really quickly. They won't be able to sleep, um, insomnia, their cortisol levels will go up so they won't um, be resilient to stress. They'll get very anxious, worried. Um, they'll just become flighty. It's like they're going off, you know, into space. And so food is really important because food is what grounds us. And food's not just nutrition for the body, but it's nutrition for the soul. You know, the, all the traditional wisdom spoke about food as nourishing the emotions, you know. And so this is another really important facet that we don't always get in modern medicine. It's all, all about the calories or the nutrients. But, you know, food's enjoyable. You know, you gather around with your friends or your family and you break bread and you drink some wine and it's 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 more than just the nutrients. So fasting in moderation, I, I tend to get people to what's called social fast. And that's how I do it. You actually just integrate it into your life. There's nothing worse than going to a party, is there? When, you know, everyone's having a good time, you're having a few drinks and you're eating and someone's on a fast. You know, they're sitting there just drinking water or eating a celery stick and it's like, you know, just enjoy yourself. <laughs> You know, and so sounds like most of my social outings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the idea is, is enjoy the celebration. You know, it's, yeah. it's not going to kill you. And then you do your fasting over the next day or two to get back on track. So you have the big night out. You drink. You eat a bit too much cheesecake, whatever it is. And then obviously you don't eat till lunch the next day, or even dinner the next day, depending on your body type. And so you just just try and work it in with a 
with a lifestyle where you're still having fun, you're you know, enjoying life, but getting the benefits of intermittent fasting at the same time. You know, it's really interesting. I know for me with fasting, it's kind of removed a lot of the um, the food, uh, the food shame and the food guilt. Because I used to be one of those people that was very careful with my nutrition. Uh, and if I ever stepped out of line, you know, I was the first person to beat myself up. But once I discovered, you know, not so much fasting as I've been doing for a long time, but the intermittent fasting, yeah, it actually gave, it felt to me it gave me a lot, it gave me a whole other access to, you know, different foods and social. Um, consumption or social food consumption that in most cases I wouldn't have participated in before. But yep. I actually find now that when I eat foods, when I eat more, in some cases, ice cream or a little bit of cheesecake, I actually find myself the next day actually feeling a little bit better, yep. which is a little bit counterintuitive for most people. Mm. And that can certainly happen. And that's why, and as I said, fasting is a good thing. I, I don't want to be seen to um, being negative of fasting, it's it's fantastic. One of the questions I always ask and get people to ask with their health is, how did nature intend it? You know, when you go out and you're thinking of food, did Mother Nature grow bottles of vitamin pills that hanging off trees or growing out of the ground? No, it's it's real food. So um, fasting is the same. Animals, when they're sick, naturally fast. You know, and so in Ayurvedic medicine, there's a principle called self-referral and it's just this simple wisdom that we all know about trusting our gut intuitively go and eat certain foods do you feel better you know i have more energy my skin clears up i'm you know dynamite at work fantastic if you eat certain foods or you fast too much or too little you know do i feel heavy and bloated and you know we're at infinitely intelligent organism the human body and sometimes we just need to tune in and listen to the feedback it's giving us rather than just going with what the expert advice is all the time and when, we, when we flip back to meditation for a second there are so many different forms of meditation available uh, i know i did a whole range before i found vedic uh, I did Vipassana a number of times before I found Vedic. Mm. Why Why did you choose Vedic? And what's the difference between Vedic meditation or transcendental meditation and other forms of perhaps meditation that are more widely known as well? Yeah, so really interesting. And one of the beauties today is that we have neuroscience. And just in the last couple of years, what neuroscience has done is shown us that all different types of meditation basically fall into one of three categories. The first is what's called focused attention. And that's the traditional, you know, you think of the old sort of Zen Buddhism, the back straight and the, you know, monks walking around with the stick, making sure you're upright. And it's very um, regimented. Often there's a strong concentration focus. And basically it keeps the mind active. If we had an analogy of a, again, an ocean on the surface of the ocean, are waves. Often those waves are sort of crashing into each other. They're agitated. It's turbulent on the surface of the ocean. But if we could dive down to the depths of the ocean, the ocean is completely calm, silent. And so anything that keeps the mind active, in a sense, keeps us on the surface level of the mind or the ocean. And this is what focused attention generally does. The second form, what they've found, is called open monitoring. And this is where most mindfulness type practices come in. Instead of trying to focus on something or trying to control thoughts, we just dispassionately observe the thoughts. 
So instead of staying up on the surface of the waves, it's as if we sort of dive down and we're observing the waves from a little bit under the, under the waves, if that makes sense. And so we don't get caught up so much of the stresses and the anxieties and the research on mindfulness shows that it's very good at, you know, bringing more calm, good for pain management and certain things like that. But the third level or the third type of meditation they've shown is what's called automatic self-transcending. And this is where transcendental meditation comes in. And all the research was done on TM because it's a very systematic, reliable technique. And through the use of a mantra or a sound, it enables the mind to actually what's called transcend. And transcend means to go beyond. So we go beyond all the agitated surface level thinking of the mind, the mind naturally settles down to as if the bottom of the ocean. Mahashi Mahesh Yogi, who brought TM out to the West many years ago, called this state the state of restful alertness. So the body enjoys deep rest, but the mind is alert or awake. And science shows this correlates to what's called alpha brainwave coherence, particularly in the frontal cortex of the brain, which we know is like the CEO of the brain, all our decision-making, focus, important sort of cognitive functions are in the front of the brain, alpha brainwave activity. So Mahashi brought TM out 50, 60 years ago, a lot of research done on TM. Um, and then, you know, naturally with that research, other um, groups or whatever sort of taken the basic principle of TM and uh, expanded or used it in other forms. And that's where Vedic meditation um, comes in. So they're, they're the three principal types. And so it, it seems to me you, we've already covered a couple of incredi incredibly good performance hacks. And, you know, I often joke with my mates about uh, opening up an anti-aging clinic yeah. uh, where, the, where the only thing it would teach people is... Um, yeah, meditation, fasting, and uh, you know, solid exercise and hydration practices. Yeah. Outside of fasting and fa using fasting intermittently, and also you know, um, situationally, and outside of meditation, what other Vedic hacks have you learned? And again, I know that's a very Western term because every Western is looking for the hack. They're looking for the button. You know, they're looking for that 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 um, that quick fix. But as we know, nothing comes in a quick fix. Everything comes from practice and yeah. meditation is a great practice where a lot of people go. And we actually might actually talk, talk to that one more time before we look at another hack. Cause I, and I'm sure you, you you've heard this before cause you, you talk a lot about meditation in your book and the work that you do. But the number one thing I hear people say when we talk about meditation is, oh, okay, when I tried to meditate, but I yeah. just can't, I'm just someone who can't meditate. You know, I tried it. My, my mind's just too busy. Now, when you get that kind of a, when you get that kind of a dialogue coming back to you, like what's your first response? Oh, I absolutely love it. I love that response because it's, it, it leads into beautifully just the benefits of what we call transcending. I'm actually writing a book at the moment, um, all about transcendence and how it is completely different to what we think of as mindfulness or traditional meditation practice. And this is where this belief or mindset has come that meditation is difficult or hard work. And it's the idea that thoughts can't be controlled. That's the traditional thinking of meditation, that the mind is active by nature. Therefore, we have to control it. And one of my favorite analogies that Mahashi would speak about when he would teach TM was about the honeybee. The honeybee is active only while it hasn't found what it's looking for. Once it finds the nectar, 
it stops. And it's the same with anything in life. If you're in a library and you're reading a book, then it's pretty boring. And someone turns on some beautiful music, your mind effortlessly, effortlessly, effortlessly moves from the book to the music. After a while, if someone changes the station and the music's pretty boring, but you open up the window and there's that beautiful sound of kids playing outside, that innocent laughter, it's just joyous. Your mind effortlessly moves from the music to the kids playing. And so the principle is that our minds by nature always move to what is more charming or more blissful. It's only when the mind can't find that does it keep active and busy and moving around. And so transcendence, transcending rather than staying on the surface of the mind is natural. It's like diving, Mahashi says. We just take the correct angle and nature or gravity does the rest. So it's our nature to experience that. And that's why all the saints, all the spiritual masters, all the yogis, the sages throughout thousands of years have said that bliss is the nature of life. We think that's really strange in our modern world because we're, we live life on the, on the surface level of life, the material level only. And it's only when we dive in and through TM and those sort of practices, it's a very natural way, an easy way to do that. So meditation is actually effortless. And Maharshi used to say <laughs> in TM, he used to say, yeah. he used to say trying in TM, trying is prohibited. You're not allowed to try. And as you would know, once we try in this, because it's so innocent, then we don't get the benefits. So uh, I love the question. Yeah. And so when you get people saying, but, but you don't understand, it's not effortless for me. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 and even when I don't try, it seems to be even harder. You know, I find myself being constantly distracted because I know for me personally, like someone says to me, go, cool. And I tried to meditate, but I keep getting distracted. I said, but do you catch yourself? They say, yes. I said, well, that's kind of the point. <clears throat> Would you agree like in many respects that part of the learning how to transcend is just becoming aware of where the mind goes and allowing that to flow? Yeah. Well, all that's, all that's, gone through when, when people do the course, obviously, they get the proper instruction about that. But the, the principle I think that's missing from that whole understanding is that people often think the idea of meditation is for the 15 or 20 minutes while they've got their eyes closed, that they have these thoughts that meditation is this sort of blissful, expansive sort of thing that is wonderful. And if they don't have that in the meditation, they're not doing it correctly. Whereas what Mahashi would say was that, no, the meditation is just a prelude for life, for activity. At the end of the day, when you've been out in the garden and you've got dirt on your arm, you've got smells and odors, you don't jump in the shower and sort of analyze the whole thing. You know, where did I get this bit of dirt and where did this smell come from? You just turn the shower on and wash it off and then you get on with your life. If your house is dirty, you clean the house. Sometimes cleaning the house is not a blissful, enjoyable experience, but it's the result of the cleaning is why you do it. That then you can enjoy your house, you can have your friends over, have parties and it's enjoyable. And so meditation, even transcendence, transcending meditation is exactly the same. And that's why we have we have this principle when people get taught is that we don't analyze the experience of it. For some people, on some days, it's beautiful, it's expansive, it's blissful, wonderful. On other days, lots of thoughts. 
but we don't get caught up in that. We just do it. If we're innocent, it's effortless. We get the benefits and that's what the research shows. Life becomes better. Business becomes better. Relationships become better. And we just get on with our life. Not sure yeah, that answered the question, but. Well, no, it's a, it's a, it's a good answer, but I'm curious today on, on average, because a lot of people go, well, how long is it going to take before I start to feel any benefits? And what's your experience? <laughs> you know, cause again, most people are, are wanting to get to, you know, straight to the point yeah. uh, and straight to the benefit. They want to press a button, but how long do you normally find it takes for most people to feel some kind of a benefit? Uh, we nearly always within the first um, four days. So TM's taught as a four day course by the end of the four day course, nearly everyone has had some benefit. And that's the beauty of transcending. It's contrast, you know, when we're always living life on the surface, even just little, tiny little glimpses or experiences of something more rested, more calming, makes a massive difference. In my voluntary work, um, I work for something called the David Lynch Foundation, which is a foundation that teaches TM to what we call at-risk populations. So women with domestic violence, war veterans that come back, you know, nightmares of war, um, young kids that just violent backgrounds. And the beauty is that the more extreme the stress, the more traumatized the people are, the quicker and more immediate and more profound the benefits they have from transcending because it's such a contrast to what their life mm. is. So we say people get benefits right from the very first time they meditate. But as you're alluding to, we're all different. Some people that maybe don't have a very stressful life, they're already pretty happy and balanced. Then obviously those changes aren't so sort of stark than, uh, than others that have had a pretty rough ride. So um, what's another performance hack that you've learned, you know, outside mm. of uh, the, the meditation and the fasting, like what's another practice that you've introduced as a, as a daily or a weekly routine that is perhaps not a one percenter, but maybe a four or a five percenter or a 10 percenter when it comes to what it gives back? The one that comes to mind is um, early morning sunlight exposure. Modern mm -hmm. science is gradually picking up on this over the last few years, a bit more research on the benefits of it. But traditionally, Early morning sunlight exposure was an absolute foundation of peak performance. And in traditional cultures, they would actually have an ancient ritual and it was called sun gazing. They would actually mm. get up in the early hours because they were living in tune with the laws of nature. They're going to bed when it was designed, they'd wake up before sunrise. And for the first few minutes of the day, they would actually look directly at the sunrise, no sunglasses because they knew that in the first 30 to 45 minutes of sunrise, the sun does not harm the human eye, but it does three really important things, particularly considering our Western epidemics of obesity, depression, um, and insomnia. And so the first thing it does is it actually regulates all our sleep-wake cycle. As we mm. discussed, the movement of the sun through the sky is like the cosmic regulator of all our internal biological cycles and so in the early morning hours it's that natural light through the eyes that stimulates the pineal gland that actually regulates our sleep-wake cycle so people that can't sleep at night often think oh what am i doing at seven o'clock at night you know my light's too bright or but sleep actually starts the minute we wake up it's that natural light through the eyes that 
regulates the melatonin and the other neurotransmitters that actually sequence through the day to then send us to sleep at night. Second thing it does is it regulates all our endocrine functions, you know, appetite, thirst, weight regulation, thyroid function. But thirdly, and most importantly for people today, is what natural full spectrum sunlight through the eyes does, or even natural light, if it's not summer, if people live in Melbourne or Tasmania, is it actually stimulates the neurochemistry of happiness, joy, and positivity, which we cannot fully manufacture without that natural light, which is why in countries like England, you know, United Kingdom, they have sad, seasonal affective disorder, low sunlight, low mood, often depression. And so that's why I say one of the best things that, you know, as you say, we don't always use the word hack, but one of the simplest thing doesn't cost anyone any money, doesn't really take much time out of your day, is just get outside in the early morning hours. And if the sun's coming up, actually just look at it, sun gaze for 30 seconds, a minute, you can gradually build up over time. Or if you're not sure, if you want to be cautious and you're worried about um, damaging your eyes or anything like that, you can actually just look at the sun and even do this in the middle of the day, just with your eyes closed and with your hands over your eyes. And so that still stimulates all the rods and cones in the eyes. They say that's very good for um, visual performance, but it also very, very good mentally, emotionally, and even spiritually. Great way to get a quick dose of vitamin D first thing in the morning as well. And it's something that I've been doing because um, I started my I started losing my short-sightedness um, I think mm. it was, uh, maybe about nine months ago. Um, and I freaked out because I was like, I've had 20-20 my whole life. Uh, I've enjoyed solid vision. And then, you know, one morning I woke up and it was like I had sleep in my eyes and I couldn't yeah. wipe it out of my eyes. Um, yeah. And again, it's the, it's the dangers of, you know, the screen, the dangers of looking at our phone. And, you know, I, I sat down with a, you know, a very wise, um, you know, medicine man who said, well, look, Kerwin, when, you, when you're constantly fixing your gaze at one point, you know, the, the, the part of your eye that is used to flexing no longer flexes as much and it becomes stiff. And yeah. it's not letting in the right type of light. And the light that it's letting in is actually, you know, going towards its, contributing towards its hardening. Mm. And so uh, I started a routine of gallbladder cleansing, liver cleansing, drinking lemon juices in the morning. Like I'm talking half liter of lemon juice in the morning and carrot juice, but sun gazing as well. And I actually found sun gazing was the, the, the thing that actually started to bring my eyes back. And what's so interesting is I can do two or three days of sun gazing in a row and I can actually focus better at short distances. It's phenomenal. Mm. It's actually quite remarkable. Yeah, it's fascinating, really fascinating. And the, the point just to pick up on um, with vitamin D is there's some really interesting research on that over the last decade. And again, written about this in books and things, but for, for maximum or proper vitamin D, we have to understand that it's actually separate from sun gazing. And so it's it relates to when we get the sun hitting the, the skin. And what they've found is that it's between generally, depending on the latitude but and depending on the time of the year, it's actually only in the middle of the day that we get vitamin D from the sun because the sun has two main aspects, UVA and UVB. And it's only UVB radiation that actually stimulates or synthesizes vitamin D in the skin. And UVB actually goes on a you know, like a bell curve during the day. And in most locations, it's actually only peaks in the middle of the day. So in America, 15 years ago, they used to have these sort of eccentric early researchers that one was called Crispin um, Sullivan. She wrote a book called Get Naked at Noon. And it was, of course, the exact opposite 
of what we were told, particularly over here, you yeah, know, right. our cancer councils. You've got to avoid the midday sun, get your sun in the early morning. So the early morning sunlight, sun gazing is fantastic for all the reasons you've pointed out in terms of, you know, eyesight and mood and regulating these cycles. But for our vitamin D sunlight, we need to get that closer to the middle of the day. Yeah, right. Because it's interesting because I, I, I thought someone told me only recently that the only way we can absorb vitamin D is through the eyes. I must have got that wrong. It's through mm. the skin. Midday sun. Midday sun. Get naked at nude. I've got a, a couple of blogs on that. And, and really important that when it's summer, um, we don't, you don't wash yourself. You don't go and have a shower with soap after your vitamin D exposure. Because one of the things they have found is that our modern soaps actually reduce the vitamin D that we do absorb through the skin. So, uh, yeah. Well, I have seen this fascinating trend happening all over the world called anal bathing, anal sunbathing, where <laughs> people are, you know, pointing their, their tutu towards the, the, the sun in order to absorb, I don't know, is there anything in this from the Vedics? Does the Vedics tell us that there's anything in this or are these people just crackpots who need to put their pants on? I haven't actually heard of the anal one. I was doing a podcast with a guy a few months ago and he told me about um, – testes bathe in the testes you know the men get the testes yeah, wow. out and, and bathe those so um i'm assuming that the skin is obviously a lot more delicate and sensitive there so it, there may be some science behind it i don't know about it but um Look. the other thing we have to be careful with is is when we're exposing parts of the body that aren't used to sunlight to uva and uvb radiation then it's more a delicate situation, pardon the pun, you know? So it's like when um, those with Caucasian skin, you know, English people come to the harsh climate of Australia, you know, that traditional white skin and their bodies aren't, hadn't built up a resistance and a pigmentation to that amount of sunlight. And that's where we get into trouble with skin cancers and melanomas. It's not that the sun is in itself harmful, but we can overexpose it. So I'd suggest people looking to these sort of, left field types of uh, sunbathing might be want to be a little bit cautious with them. Now, mate, you've reason. dropped some incredible, uh, incredible um, information bombs while you've been here. You've actually even written, written a book on, on this and more. Is that right? Yeah, I wrote a book, Ancient, well, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Health. Um, it's actually going to be a three-book series. So that's the first book which goes through um, all this, you know, the natural cycles, the daily cycles we've discussed, um, emotional health, exercise, how traditional cultures saw exercise as almost like a meditation and a means to higher states of consciousness, all the sunlight, the earthing, all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, we're just about to finish the second book in the series over the next uh, couple of months, hopefully. And, what, and the second book, it's going to be book two on the ancient, ancient yeah. wisdom for modern health? Correct. Yes. And what additions is going to be in this book that wasn't in the first book? Uh, this one we go, we're calling it the higher wisdoms. So it's basically a deeper dive into the ancient Vedic or Ayurvedic philosophy of life. So we talk about Dharma. Dharma's, you know, our life purpose, that sort of activity that we're sort of born to fulfill. Instead of going into diet, we look into digestion. So in Ayurveda, there's a principle that digestion is actually more important than diet. And so we dive into that. We go into the body types mm. in detail. So how to understand what your body type is. So therefore what foods and activities and relationships and types of work are most conducive to your body type. Um, there'll be stuff on the senses, how to sort of create balance through the different senses, 
visual, um, sound, all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, a few other bits and pieces. Mark, as I said, you've dropped some incredible knowledge bombs here today. If one, people want to find out more information or find out more about where they can get the book or the pre-purchase, pre-order the upcoming book, where's the base, best place for people to find you, mate? Yeah, it's just Mark Bun. B-U-N-N.com.au and uh, they can find everything there from the podcast to the books to online programs to conference speaking or whatever they like. So, uh, yeah, markbun.com.au. And also on all the social channels as well? Correct. Yeah, they can all find that all on the website, all the links. So uh, Fantastic. So check him out. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Bun. Mark, thank you so much for your time, your knowledge and your information today, mate. Look forward to spending more time with you in the future. Likewise, buddy, and uh, thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you, Mark. Cheers, mate. This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And please do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you get to see all of these interviews in the flesh. Share this podcast with your friends and drop me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear what you guys think and also let you know your comments help make sure that we keep producing killer content just like this. And if you'd like to stay up to date with all of my movements, upcoming podcasts, events, and much more, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com, and also check us out on all social media on the handle at Kerwin Ray. Thanks for joining us.